0: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. And I'm here with Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And Vanity Fair's senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. We have lost Mike Hogan this week. He's out in San Francisco at the Vanity Fair Summit. But we're all here, and uh, we get to mark the release of one of the most universally acclaimed movies of the festival season, which is Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. It's something I was hearing about a lot from uh, Telluride in Toronto, and I was really excited to actually get to see. And all three of us have seen it, which is wonderful. It's this heartfelt coming-of-age drama. Uh, it's got a series of incredible performances, but it's got an interesting challenge. in that not only does it have three different actors playing the main character over the course of his life, but it's got all of these other great supporting performances. And it's wonderful for the film, but a real challenge when it comes to Oscar season. So we'll talk about Moonlight in the context of Oscar season and then be joined by Barry Jenkins himself via phone, who is talking about the experience of going through the awards ringer with Moonlight and uh, making a film that feels so personal, but believe it or not, he actually didn't think was that personal when he started making it. But first, the New York Film Festival has concluded and ended with a pretty big and splashy premiere of Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which mm-hmm. is an angly movie, which means it's highly anticipated, and comes with a twist in the way it was filmed, which sounds like it, uh, maybe divisive is the kindest way to put it. It sounded, it sounded kind of complicated. It's very diplomatic, yes. <laughs> divisive, <yeah. laughs> So let's hear from the trailer for Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk.
1: It's going down. What? It's sort of weird, being honored for the worst day of your life. You know
0: things most of the rest of us will never know. That's gotta weigh heavy on a young man's shoulders. It's really good
2: to have you back, little brother.
0: Your story, Billy, no longer belongs to you. It's America's story now. Richard, you were on hand to see how it went. What was the deal?
2: So, you know, Angley is a great storyteller, but he's also much like uh, Zemeckis or Spielberg or James Cameron, really fascinated by the sort of tools and machinery of filmmaking. And namely, in Billy Lynn, he plays around with uh, frame rate, which, you know, I guess to the layperson, like it's just basically we see a certain amount of images per second.
0: 24 is standard for film. And
2: so he, this is done at like 120 or something. I mean, it's like really, and, and what that makes is a clear quote unquote image. You hear about this a lot when people get new HDTVs and mm-hmm. they get the kind of BBC effect and it looks kind of weird and yeah, it looks it a lo- little too real. It looks
0: like soap opera, I think. Yeah, is. Uh-huh. And this is what uh, with The Hobbit it came out when Peter Jackson right. made those At- movies in 48 frames per second. Right.
2: And that's 48. And so Ang Lee has now jumped <laughs> way past <laughs> that. But also he introduced the film on Friday when I saw it and he said it was not just the frame rate, but also it was in 3D and there was the brightness of the 3D was brighter than anything had been which i guess had some effect and basically he took this novel about a, a soldier on a two week furlough from the war in Iraq um, kind of experiencing this weird media swirl because he was a hero over there this it was you know really highly acclaimed novel and he took this kind of intimate story and chose that to be the kind of vehicle for this Noodling around with with new technology.
0: Is it as weird a fit as it sounds like? Because yeah. Life of Pi was yeah. this huge technological achievement, and he yeah. was in three right. D. He had these CGI animals, and it was. You, and it was also a best selling book. But you kind of saw the reason to throw all this technology at the screen, and it really worked. But this, as a novel with people, it all it doesn't seem to have quite the same reason behind it.
2: I don't know why this was the one he wanted to do. I, I <laughs> guess I understand. So there's a kind of flashback motif in the movie where Billy, played by a newcomer named Joe Alwyn, is recounting in his memory the battle that made him a hero. And so you get these very immediate up-close battle scenes, and those rendered in this very odd uh, frame rate world. I guess there is some power to that, Mm -hmm. but in these more intimate kind of scenes of dialogue in the present tense, where they're kind of backstage at a football game, because they're being kind of paraded around, where it's just people talking, I don't really understand why it needed this kind of application of, of technology.
3: You know, I really do think it's fascinating. Engle continues to be one of our best or occasionally best adapters of novels, like his Sense of Sensibility continues to be my favorite Austin adaptation. And it upsets me sometimes to see directors fall down the rabbit hole i mean you know kitty's more of a james cameron advocate than i am but like it direct- comes up <laughs> <laughs> but direct- Actors chasing technological achievement over when they're quite gifted at telling story, that seems like a bigger loss to me than someone who was always sort of addicted to spectacle. Do you know?
0: Yeah. Well, and up to this point, Ang Lee has seemed to really figure out how to adapt spectacle to a story. I mean, the Hulk has its detractors, but he was really doing something interesting with a comic book format. Uh, and Life of Pi was pretty successful in its terms. And uh, the, the thing about Billy Lynn, though, is it seems like most people will not see the version that you saw. The high right. frame rate thing is not something most movie theaters are equipped to show, so will it even be a problem for most people who see the movie?
2: Well, yeah. So it was this funny thing where normally at the New York Film Festival or most festivals, there's a, you know the sort of public screenings or the premieres. And then there's these things called P&Is, press and industry screenings. And there was not one for Billy Lynn. It was a kind of invite only because there was only one screening room at AMC at Lincoln Square that has the projector that's capable of this very expensive piece of equipment that's capable of showing it at this crazy frame rate. And my understanding is there, I think, only four other public screening rooms in the country. Yeah. So most people won't see it at this kind of elevated thing. So I didn't review the movie from the festival because I want to wait. It's coming out next month. I want to wait and see a screening where it's not Mm -hmm. in the frame rate just to see if I see anything different. Because... I don't want to be a Luddite. I don't want to be behind the times or anything. (laughs) But like, boy, oh, boy, I can't stand it. It just takes everything out of what... You know, yes, movies don't look exactly like real life, Mm -hmm. but they kind of can elevate it or illuminate it in a way that, you know, that that's what makes them powerful. And, 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 And trying to get as close to it being like we're looking through a window... I just don't understand it. It, it kind of creates this uncanny valley. Thing I was just going
0: to say it sounds like the uncanny yeah. valley. Like it's too close to reality so it feels not creepy maybe but it just feels weird. It
2: really weird and co- <laughs> I saw the movie with a colleague who I won't name just in case he <laughs> doesn't want to get in trouble but he said to me he was like it looked like a corporate kind of industrial kind of instructional film. Yikes. You know, it Yikes.
3: Like, What's interesting to me is I was talking about this with a um, friend of the podcast Dave Gonzalez who is for Geek.com. He knows so much more about animation than I do. Obviously this is not an animated film, but he was talking about how higher frame rates in video games is actually rendering better animation and a more immersive experience for people. And I wonder, none of us, I think, are very trained on video game aesthetic. I certainly haven't spent a lot of time playing them. And I wonder if... As films tend towards this increased frame rate, it will merge with a video game aesthetic, which sounds like a nightmare to me, but maybe alluring to people who spend a lot of time looking at images that way.
2: I mean, that's interesting. There are moments when it does look like kind of one of these intercut scenes in a video game Mm -hmm. where you're not 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 playable, but it looks sort of like a movie. Yeah, I mean, definitely has that. I think what a lot of this is. Well, it's also you know a filmmaker just kind of interested in exploring the kind of technology of his craft, but I think that in general studios and distributors and exhibitors the theaters themselves are trying to figure out how to get people to keep going to movies when those audiences are famously sort of in a slow collapse and you know so we have assigned seats and we have big plush things and we mm-hmm. have food you can order you know that, that that's all changing and i think this is a, yet another one and i think you're right joanna it's trying to appeal to gamers and it's trying to appeal to people who maybe feel like oh i can just get a regular experience at home but it's like well no if you come to the theater yeah. it's going to look like they're right there well, and it's right. worked yeah. with
0: a avatar in 3d and that, sure, you know it was yeah. really yeah. bringing people in but 3d has kind of proved to have diminishing returns and high frame rate with the hobbit movies by the time the third one came out i think no one saw it in the no. 48 frames per second
2: no i'm mean, Yeah, exactly. I think Zemeckis has overstepped with his kind of mocap stuff. And people were like, nope, don't want that. With like Mars needs moms or whatever the heck he made. Polar Express. (laughs) Express. (laughs) Certainly Peter Jackson overstepped with, with Hobbit. Ang Lee, I think, does. Billy Lynn. James Cameron, though, has... Kind of never. He's always kind of prized the story over the technology. And he was,
0: and he's the first one out. Like Avatar was first. We'll see what happens with Avatar two through five.
2: Right. We should plug David Sims and Griffin Newman. (laughs) Our friends are doing a podcast (laughs) uh, all about James Cameron right now called Blank Check.
0: And Avatar (laughs) will be coming up.
2: I think a couple episodes.
0: Okay, so this is an Oscar podcast. Billy Lynn has a lot of good actors. Ang Lee has won two Best Director Oscars. I mean, given that most people won't see it in high frame rate, is this still part of the conversation?
2: I would say that the response from New York Film Festival was decidedly negative. Um, And I think that's partly the film's fault, but also partly our fault, because I had been so ready for this movie and really excited about it. It has a great trailer. So I hope that, you know, maybe if people see it without this frame rate stuff because it's so distracting. But, you know, there was a lot of talk about, oh, maybe Kristen Stewart, because she has a supporting role. I literally predicted her last week. Yeah, or maybe Vin Diesel, which I had sort of kept bringing up. I don't see it mm-hmm. happening yeah. and you know Steve Martin no uh, <laughs> without going too hard on the movie um, there are very few good performances in the movie well yeah
0: that is uh, yeah. okay well let's end the uh, New York Film Festival talk with a positive note I think mm-hmm. although this is a film that's not coming out till next year so not relevant to this year's Oscar race but La City of Z you liked it huh
2: holy cow yes wow. I, so I saw Billy Lynn on Friday night and was um, pretty disappointed and then kind of did a quick turnaround and woke up the next morning early and saw James Gray's new film based on the David Grand from The New Yorker his book about exploration in the Amazon in the early 20th century Lost City of Z it stars Charlie Hunnam who is not an actor I'd ever really caught into I'm not a Sons of Anarchy watcher
0: Joanna, you were though. I was,
2: but I would never defend Charlie Hunnam as a nuanced (laughs) performer. I thought he was really well cast
3: in that show, but everything else I've seen from him made me skeptical of Richard's
2: high praise that he's about to dole. You even tweeted at me like some skeptical (laughs) face or something. Yeah, yeah. No, I was skeptical about it too because you know James Gray has been around for a while. He's had a very interestingly evolving career. He started as kind of doing these like little, like, gritty crime dramas. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he's kind of shifted gears into some period stuff. His last film was The Immigrant with Marion Cotillard. Which um, got its
0: share of kind of unlikely Oscar buzz. It did, it, it despite being
2: end. buried deliberately by its distributor. You know, so he's kind of on this new path, and this is, I think, the first film of his, really, that for me has clicked. I'm like, oh, he has this very old-fashioned, kind of deliberate aesthetic and style, and this is this sweeping epic about ego, about male ego, really, in a condemning way, but also a sensitive way. And Charlie Hunnam, I had never got him before as an actor and as, frankly, a hunk. (laughs) And um, holy cow, in this one, I'm like, oh, he's like this dashing movie star. Wow. Yeah. Well, it helps that um, the the haircut of Mm. the time like oh, it, it's like it's kind the, of the same haircut that's like trendy now. Yeah, like the like white, the the, the, the short of, sides the and the long on the back. top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he looks like kind of like a modern guy. Uh, it's really funny.
0: <laughs> so dreamboat alert, yeah. and also serious actor alert at the same time. you yeah. need to like he need to shave off that biker
3: beard and long hair in order to get your attention. I guess so. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, this is the first movie James Gray has made that isn't set in New York, which is really interesting. It kind of uh Sounds like he's poised for, I mean, which is funny, he's poised for a breakout. He's been making films for about 20 years. But uh, Richard, you were saying that even though this is coming out in the spring, if they release it like either this December or next December, like it could be a real contender.
2: I mean, I think it's a, it has a big enough scope that it could be in there for Best Picture. Absolutely. I think that Hunnam, um certainly could be in the conversation. But I think the biggest kind of standout in, in the Oscar sense... Uh, is Sienna Miller, who, Mm. you know, we're joking that it's another suffering wife role. She's done it in Foxcatcher. She's done it in American Sniper. She's doing it here. But very smartly, uh, James Gray gives her agency and she pushes back against her kind of dogged explorer husband. She's like, you know, they have real conversations and she's the lone human in the final, beautiful final shot of the film and kind of takes the movie to its close. And and she's great. I, I mean... I'm sure there are financial logistics of why they want to release it in the spring versus waiting until next fall when yeah. it will be more Oscar-y. But I don't know. I think that if, if that movie got the right attention that like – Sienna Miller could, at hey. long last, get her due.
0: Well, I'm excited for this, and I guess we have a lot of we have a whole Oscar season to go through before we get to Lust, E, Z for most of us. It's
2: exhausting but. to think about talking about <laughs> next year's Oscar season, so we should <laughs> probably just press on. And, <sighs> yeah.
0: Well, that's a, uh, a good time to talk about a movie that is definitely in the conversation for this year and should remain so no matter what else comes out this year. Moonlight. Which uh, premiered at the Telluride Film Festival, I believe. Yes. And I think you guys talked about it when you saw it at Telluride. Joanna and I have since seen it. It opens in theaters on some limited basis this weekend. Richard, just kind of recap me on what your take on. I mean, Telluride was a great place for it to premiere. Barry Jenkins has a long history with the festival. So I'm assuming there was kind of a rapturous response there.
2: Yeah, it was really exciting because he had worked at the festival in Mm -hmm. various, like I think his first as a volunteer and then, you know, in other capacities over the years. So it was a real homecoming for him. And it premiered on a Friday night. So the first night of the festival Everyone had just seen La La Land, so everyone was kind of up and Mm -hmm. happy and excited. And it played very well and continued to at Toronto and, and New York so yeah I I don't know I think it's up there among my favorite movies of the year
0: and so Joanna you saw it at the Mill Valley Film Festival was it a similar kind of rapturous response
3: yeah I you know it's it's so interesting I saw it at like 1130 in the morning it's timing is always interesting with these film festivals and in the middle of the week and the Mill Valley Film Festival is such a weird one because most of the people who go to it are people who are not putting their lives on hold to go to a festival but rather people who live in Marin and are just trying to catch up on their Oscar hopefuls so it was not Not a packed theater at 1130 a.m. on a Wednesday to see Moonlight. But that being said, the audience that was there was like transfixed and (laughs) captivated. You could just feel that energy in the room. And this is such a beautiful coming of age story that works in a way that I feel like boyhood worked for everyone else and didn't work for me and this one really really did so uh, yeah it was a I would say rapturous that's a good definition of it.
0: Yeah the boyhood comparison is kind of where this comes into the larger theme I wanted to bring into this so we weren't just kind of raving about Moonlight for 20 minutes Uh, because (laughs) it's following this one character from when he's 9 years old to maybe 30 years old and uh, unlike boyhood it wasn't filmed over 15 years Uh, so there's 3 different actors playing this character and he that, that character or something, the main character of the film, but it's got these three distinct performances that each take up probably, a, you know, exactly a third of the film. So in addition to these three actors, you know, you have a nine-year-old, you have a 30-year-old who is an actor who was a track star before he was an actor, I think, Trevante Rhodes. And then you've got supporting performances from people like Mahershala Ali, who's once in The Hunger Games and House of Cards and then Naomi Harris, who's been in the Bond film. So you've got this great ensemble. And I I think I have my favorite version of Chiron, the main character, but I really could not begin to tell you who they should be campaigning for awards. Do either of you have like a set idea of how you untangle this knot? Which is great for the movie, but really hard for Oscar season. Well, it would explain
3: why, you know, when Mike and Richard talked about this film, I think a couple of times on the podcast before I got to see it, it was always in the context of supporting actor for Naomi Harris or Michelle Lee. It was never for any of the actors playing the lead. And I think you, I don't know that you can advocate for one of them over the other. That's my feeling. I feel like they just equally shaped that arc so much. What do you think, Richard?
2: Well, I mean, you think about the Tonys have done this, you know, when they had three Billy Elliotts, for example they nominated mm-hmm. all three of them. I think all three of them won even. And you kind oh. of want these three actors who play Sharon, the, the lead character, because they're all so good in their own way. And they're kind of creating a full human being, one, you know, singular entity. But yeah, I think that, you know, you can't really do that. I don't think the rules allow for that. <laughs> um, and I, I think that in a way, you don't want to single one of the Sharon's out at the expense of the other two. And yeah. so that's why our attention turns elsewhere. And I think that a film like this, I think I just really want it to get nominations and wins and so Mm -hmm. I don't really care where they come from (laughs) do you know what I mean because I think it's just so important that you know this is a movie that we don't see ever about the contemporary black experience the gay experience about Mm -hmm. the intersectionality of those two things and done in this very artful thoughtful really passionate way it's such a rare kind of gift of a movie and I hate to be hyperbolic about that but like it really is so if it's Ali if it's Harris if it's whoever like sure well, you know
0: the person who I hadn't heard that much about and I had kind of not read too much about the movie which was really nice to go see it uh, Andre Holland shows up in the last oh, third yeah. he's, mm-hmm. you know I know him from the Nick he's had a long right. career otherwise and he's incredible in the yeah. end of that movie and so you've got even if you just t- set aside the Chirones and let them be their own thing you've got him and Mahershala Ali both giving great supporting performances and how do you choose between those two?
2: I don't know. I met Andre Holland at uh, the opening night party for the New York Film Festival a couple weeks ago. Is he
0: the handsomest man alive. Uh, I mean, he seems I, that I just way. like fell into his <laughs> eyes. I
2: was just like, "I love your movie." And He was like, "Thank you." Like he clearly gotten that a lot in the past couple months. <laughs> like people like yeah.
0: stars swimming in their eyes. <laughs> yeah,
2: but yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I can't believe I forgot him to meet. Yeah, like he's so good. Like yeah. how do you pick between him and Marcella Ali? I don't know.
3: It's interesting. He's currently serving time in a very very dull role on American Horror Story. Oh, is Is so, he really? I- uh-huh. So having to watch him every week play just like a really <laughs> thankless role on that show, which has a bunch of juicy roles, but he's got a really, really nothing to do role on that show. Nice. So to see him sort of flex his his chops in this was really delightful for me.
0: So I wonder if Spotlight is an interesting comparison for this. It was last year's mm-hmm. Best Picture winner. It obviously didn't have a hard time in awards season, but uh, Rachel McAdams kind of got singled out among all of the men in that cast. Like There were so many guys all kind of competing for the Best Supporting Actor thing, and she made it into Best Supporting actress kind of a representative of the movie and seems like Naomi Harris, who gives a very good performance on her own merits, but it could be the same thing where unable to decide among the men, you just go with Naomi Harris and put all your effort behind her.
2: It could be. Yeah. But it, like we've talked about in the past couple of weeks, actress, both in lead and supporting is kind of busy this yeah. year. I don't know. I think the cheering, the positive thing about all this is that, you know, both you, Katie, and, and you, Joanna, saw the movie a couple weeks after or a month or so after mm-hmm. uh, it first premiered. And it seems like it's living up to the hype, right? Like, you, yes. like, you know, because yeah. people have been really beating the drum for this movie since Telluride. And every subsequent audience seems to really like it. And I feel like only that and La La Land have that kind of in common so mm-hmm. far. Yeah. interesting. So I feel like this movie, we're not being crazy talking about its Oscar chances because I really think that it
0: No, but it, I think it is a challenge. I think you hear this, it's kind of hard to describe in a concept. You hear about like black gay kid growing up in the inner city, you kind of expect it to be a real downer, which I don't think it is. I think it's emotional and kind of unflinching about hard stuff, but I don't think it's like a total bummer. I mean, the thing that I'm afraid to compare it to, because it sounds too obvious, but I think Carol is a really interesting comparison mm. to this. It's a, you know, a movie about a gay relationship, but also a kind of a low-key emotional emotional drama with like beautiful production values that got not quite shut out of the Oscar race, but almost in the end.
3: Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, Carol got iced out. And there's this question that I've seen a little bit on Twitter um, (sighs) that I don't want to agree with, but that the Academy for all its new class might still be too conservative and stodgy for Moonlight, you know, which is
0: disappointing. So the true. people who wouldn't give B- Brokeback Br- Mountain best picture would also ignore Moonlight.
2: Right. right. I mean I, I hate to be cynical but it's like the the thinking might be well either you're a black film or you're a gay film and <laughs> you choose. <laughs> you can't be both, you know, and I like That sucks, but I think that that, unfortunately, is kind of the thinking of some some people.
0: Man, well, I mean, I guess we still get to think the best of the Academy for a while longer. And the critics groups are what, you know, can really light a fire under something like this. Like the Critics Awards start coming in early December, well before the Oscar ballots go out. And I think that's your chance to say, oh, well, this is a movie I have to put in. And I think if people watch this movie, it's really impossible not to be captivated by it.
2: Yeah, it's wonderful. Everyone should go see it.
0: Although, do you think it will work in the uh, the example Mike always pulls up is the, the old guy in Bel Air with all the light streaming in his windows?
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, and it also has the, the, it is told in three discrete separate parts, you know, and so maybe someone will watch the first one and be like, I get this movie and, you know? and put, put on.
0: Kids, know, Miami.
2: Put on silence or something. You know? I don't know.
0: So before we share my interview with Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, let's hear from the trailer for the movie.
1: What's you what you looking at me like that for? What man? Come on, you just drove down here. Yeah. <laughs> Who is you, Sharon?
2: Come on, time trying not to remember. Yeah.
1: Try to forget all those times. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you want to be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. You gonna tell him why the other boys kick his ass all the time? What's wrong? I'm good. No, I ain't seen good, and you ain't it. Remember the last time I saw you.
3: No, you gonna
1: listen. To who, Ma? Huh? To you? Who is you, man? I ain't seen you in like a decade. It's not what I expected. But what did you expect?
0: Hi, Barry. Can you hear me okay?
1: I can hear you okay, yeah, how are you?
0: I'm good, how are you? I know you're at the end of a long tour. Uh,
1: cool. I don't know about
0: the end, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite the end yet. Cool. The beginning of all of this, at least as far as people experiencing the movies, is at Telluride, and you have a long history with the Telluride Film Festival, and to me it reads kind of like a Cinderella story, like the guy who was taking your ticket ten years ago could be back with the biggest movie of the festival. Did it feel that way to you, kind of arriving at Telluride with this movie that was such a huge hit?
1: Uh, no, it didn't. Uh, although, because I've, I've worked there for so long, there were certain cues that stood out to me, which was uh, the, the screening slots we had mm-hmm. and the venues we were in. I was like, oh, okay, they, they must know something that I don't. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, Tom and Julie. Uh, and clearly, they were right. I mean, they, they've just done this much longer than I have. But, you know, after the first screening and, and into the second, you know, I was kind of walking around town, and it felt like I was... You know, like living living in my dream in the present tense, mm-hmm. which, is, which is such a strange feeling um, um, that I don't think many people get to have uh, very often. So,
0: What was the feeling you had before that first screening? I mean, you'd, you'd shown it to other people before, but presumably not to this big an audience. Was it nerves, right. or were you just kind of eager to have it over with?
1: Uh, it was it was nerves. You know, right be- leading up to the festival, I was saying those seven days before, I did a pretty good job, I thought. Of, of deciding for myself what I thought the film was and, and the quality of it and the quality of the work uh, we had done. Uh, so I kind of went in buffered because I've been there so many years at Telluride that I just know it, it can go so many different ways. Uh, so I was nervous as hell, yeah, I really was. Um, <laughs> because it's almost like, um, you know, you're in the sixth grade and you come home and you want to show, you know, your dad, who's this great physicist, your science project. You yeah. know? It kind of felt like that.
0: So, presumably, because this movie feels, is so emotional, I think feels personal for a lot of people, I would imagine you're getting a lot of stories from people about how they're connecting to it. Are, are, they, are you getting stories that surprise you about the ways that people re- relate to this movie?
1: It, it's been, I mean, yes. I mean, even, I mean, just to give an example from Telluride, you know, after the first screening, I was walking away. It's like maybe like 40 minutes after the screening, and there's just this like six foot two, I'd say like 66-year-old white dude who's, you know, in a North Face parka. Uh, And he's just standing there looking at me and I go over to him I'm like, Sir, are you all right? And he just gives me this hug and he's like shaking in my arms. You know, like shaking in my arms. Um, And now this week that we've been showing the film in Atlanta and, and Miami and we showed it in Brooklyn last night, um, you know, a friend texted me from the platform of the C-Train. She was like, just so you know, I'm, the train is late, and I'm eavesdropping on these two black men uh, waiting beside me, and they are just reminiscing of all these stories from their childhood that were dislodged by your film. Wow. Um, and, and that's an example of the kind of thing that I'm getting on, like, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram now. So, yeah, the movie is um, – it, it's weird. It's touching the people that I assumed it would touch, um, but it's also you know we showed the Jacob Burns Center last night in, uh, in Pleasantville it's also touching people that I just had no idea it, it would affect in the way it is.
0: Yeah I liked what you said in another interview about the movie being for us by us like the old uh, FUBU clothing line but also meant to be shared beyond that because I think with uh, you know with films that are you know made by black directors about black people or about you know a culture that someone doesn't belong to there's a sense of like oh well this movie is interesting to me but it's not for me because it's for yeah. this you know it's about this other people who I can't understand their experience so I mean how how do you, do you feel like you have to kind of allow people and take them by the hand and be like, no, this movie is for you, even if you're a white person living in Brooklyn, this movie can be for you too?
1: No, you know, and maybe I would have assumed that before this experience of touring with the film at these different cities, uh, but I've been very quickly uh, absolved of that notion uh, by the response, the genuine response of the audiences, you know, particularly in Telluride, Toronto and London. Um, you know, the, the, the way I like to think of it, uh, and I guess the most, simplest terms is, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you know, you don't want to want to go to a place where the chef is trying to cook these things he assumes the hipsters are going to want to eat. You, know? <laughs> you want to you go to a restaurant where the chef is cooking what he thinks his wife is going to want to eat or, or what his grandma uh, cooked for him, you know, but, but then he wants to share those things with these other people because I think there's, there's a genuine uh, nurturing, you know, when, it's, when it comes from this sort of first person, very personal perspective, you know, um, but, but I don't ever want my work to be closed off from people who can't share that first-person experience.
0: Yeah. I was uh, surprised to read that you said you were, or that you were kind of surprised by how personal the film became for you because you were basing it on someone else's story, working with yeah, Terrell because, McCraney. Yeah,
1: because, because I'm not that smart. <laughs> not that smart. You know, I, I, well, I thought I was. I was like, yeah, you know, because, again, I mean, not a lot of people know about these things I went through with my mom, except for, you know, this guy, Andrew Havia, who's a co-producer on the film, and who passed me the, the play from Terrell. Um, but yeah, I, I thought yeah, this is a personal, personal for Terrell, and and what I thought was because I know a bit about it, it'll just help me make it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then no, I mean, I, especially when you make a film, you know, in this way, at this budget, and with actors like this who are just so as passionate about the material as Terrell and I were. Um, you know, they bring their full selves. And, and because of that, I had to bring, bring my full self, which, you know, especially when it came to work with Naomi, was just a rude awakening.
0: Oh, that's really—so because she was playing someone inspired by your mom in some way?
1: I mean, for two reasons. One, because she was literally playing, uh, I feel like, uh, my mom. Okay. Um, and, 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 and because we were doing things that I hadn't really—that I sort of compartmentalized um, uh, at this point in my life. Uh, and that sort of felt like I had gotten, gotten beyond— um, but then also, too, the way we worked with her, you know, because of some issues she had with her visa, we were originally scheduled to shoot her, you know, over the course of, like, I'd say, three weeks, you know, we wanted to shoot the movie in sequence. So she would come down when we were doing Little, she would come back when we were doing Chiron, she would mm-hmm. come back when we were Black. But in the end, we had to shoot all her work in three days. Wow. Um, and so for three days, she's in every scene. And so for three consecutive days, I'm just looking at this highly skilled actress basically live out um, my mother's basically worst moments. Um, And uh, it was very difficult. Even even talking about it, you know, because I'm a cool, calm, collected guy, but, you know, I, I have a hard time uh, with that, but I think what came out of it was some really inspired choices um, that ended up in the film. So
0: I was almost, because I knew something, some things about the film, but not a lot in advance, which was a nice way to see it, and I didn't know that Naomi Harris was in it, and I see her, and it took me a while to recognize her, and then remember, the last time I'd seen her was in a Bond movie, and when you've yeah. got a movie that's this kind of naturalistic, and you know, when you're watching the Chirones especially, you kind of get the feeling that there are these kids who haven't been on screen before, even if, in, if some of them have been. Um, and having someone who's English take on a role like this, I mean, what made Made you say not only you know is she good for the part, but like pe- audience was won't even think about her being British after a while, which I definitely didn't.
1: You know, one, I think she, she's so gifted um, that you know with, with that role because she's the only person who appears in all three chapters. Um, I needed someone who could, and, and and thank God because you know the way we ultimately ended up doing it over the course of three days it took someone who was extremely skilled, extremely gifted that could bring uh, the same sort of uh, I don't know, the same soul. Uh, to the character and yet literally um, uh, show that the the character was transforming Mm -hmm. um, over the course of of the film. Uh, You know, was I worried about her being, uh, people seeing her and assuming she's she's English? No. Um, I I, I knew that she would do the work which she did um, and that visually we would do some things that would also sort of help not necessarily uh, hide her in the role, but just help her just just, fo- just fall more, more fully into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and once she showed up and we began working, uh, the notion of that was just completely uh, blown out of the water. And what it was replaced with was, okay, now not only this woman is my mother, but now she's taken it to a whole other point where she is the character. And the thing she did that was really beautiful was the whole film was meant to be sort of filtered through Chiron's gaze. Um, And so this image of his mother is larger than life. Um, And so I wanted to really push that character in a way. You know, you mentioned how naturalistic the other characters are. Mm -hmm. With this character, I wanted to push her in a certain way. You know, in in, in the first scene, I love that we have that pink light in the first story coming from the bedroom. Mm -hmm. That's a child image, a child's perspective of what a forbidden place is like, what a mother's den is like. Um, And I think Naomi did a great job of embodying uh, what that is in her performance. uh, I just thought she was fantastic.
0: When, when you say the whole film is from Chiron's gaze, that r- reminds me of maybe my favorite scene in the film where you've got this interlude uh, filming Andre Holland against the wall of the Steiner. And it just made mm-hmm. me think so much about how the camera is associated with the male gaze, but I haven't seen it pointed on a male actor in that way before, at least very rarely. And he's incredible in it and just looks so beautiful in it. Yeah,
1: yeah you know, I, I didn't want to make a, make this film and have it not not have moments of overt sexuality and mm-hmm. overt sensuality, uh, in particular. And, and I'll give, I'm glad you mentioned it. I haven't been asked about that scene yet because, uh, bless Andre Holland. It's not the script. Um, and it's not during the shoot. We're like, we're done with the whole sequence and We're wrapping out and I see Andre standing against the wall and I go, do you still have that cigarette? He's like, yes. And we grab the camera off the truck and just one take, you know, we wow. just walk in. Um, and, and it was such a, such a, a visceral moment to me. I think because of the way it happened uh, and the energy Andre gives, um, and, and it and it and it leans into, as you said, this idea of the male gaze filtered through uh, the male gaze. Um, oftentimes, men don't look at each other in the eye for that long. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're afraid we're afraid of what we might see in one another. Um, and this film is about, in some ways, dismantling the fear. Of, of seeing uh, these things in another man. so
0: Well, I've seen a GIF of uh, part of that scene online already, so I think it's oh, already that, taking that, on that, a life that, of that its that own.
1: That, that, that <laughs> GIF plays well across... <laughs>
0: I think it's going to be I think it's going to be Lasting like years from now We'll be seeing that gift Pop up
1: Someone someone tweeted at me uh, I just want I just want someone To look at me The way Andre Holland Looks at that camera Oh my
0: god Yeah definitely I mean I wouldn't mind Andre Holland looking at me That way in particular But anyone really (laughs) So I think either since we've been talking or just before the Gotham Award nominations came out, and uh, it mentions that they uh, wanted to give a special jury prize to the entire cast of Moonlight because I, th- I imagine it was Ooh. just impossible to single anybody out. Um, so, I, so as you kind of go into the season of, you know, Critics Awards and Oscars and all that stuff, and we are a podcast that talks about awards season, how, how, do you, how do you want any of us to be able to single out one person in this cast to give awards to when you literally have three people playing the main character? I know,
1: I know. <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, all this stuff that's happening now, I mean, again, the best part of, I know we're, this is for Little Goldman. Little mm-hmm,
0: yeah, Little Goldman.
1: <laughs> little Goldman. Like Oscars. Not exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Uh, you know, I think all that stuff is great in the sense that, you know, it just boosts the signal of the film. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, set in a, a very remote world about uh, a marginalized character, um, and yet so many people are finding their way into the piece. And the more we have this talk and this buzz about the film, the more likely someone, some kid somewhere who either wants to see themselves or needs to see themselves uh, will, will become more likely to hear about the film. So that's awesome. But, man, with these actors, they knew what they were getting into. <laughs> um, and, and, and they all came to it um, with, uh, with their best intentions at heart. And the fact that we're ending up in this, this beautiful situation, I would say, where everyone is just so good that, uh, that they're sharing the spotlight, um, you know, I think it's a blessing. And, you know, of, of all the people, you know, I, I often think of Mahershala, you know, who's mm-hmm. first up and has this just amazing character that he did a wonderful job of. And then I intentionally snatch him out of the film because I want the audience to feel what these kids feel when these these men who come into their lives as a surrogate father are often snatched out, you mm. know, at a moment's notice by the environment. And I wanted the audience to feel the same thing a kid like Chiron would feel, you know, when a when a character like Juan is taken out of his life. You know, had he been in all three chapters of the film, I mean, I mean, it would be like a slam dunk. But <laughs> yeah. Everybody, everybody was so giving of themselves that that was that was. Secondary, thirdary, it just wasn't ever an issue. It was about what do you need, Barry, and how best can I maximize the time uh, that I'm here for.
0: So, you know, aside from, you know, being grateful for the signal boost for the film and rooting for your actors, like personally dealing with this whole, you know, award season machine and hearing this stuff about yourself, like how are are you coping so far?
1: Uh, You know, I've got uh, great people around me somebody's looking at me right now who's <laughs> always keep it, keeping, keeping the stuff in check. You know, uh, the movie hasn't even opened yet. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 most important audience for this film hopefully will will come out tomorrow and, and the weekends to come. Um, and everything else, uh, I, I can't control, you know, I'm not a member of any voting body. Um, and I just hope whoever sees the film, you know, can, can identify with the characters and see themselves in it. That's the most important thing to me.
0: Yeah. You had a really, um, kind of good attitude about the way that the, the Oscars kind of came under controversy earlier this year for having this, you know, all-white slate of nominees, kind of knowing that there was good work coming that would represent other voices, even if they weren't part of that award season, Moonlight being included. But, you know, watching the way that these awards do boost the signal, do you have confidence that people are paying attention in a way that they weren't before? Not just that Moonlight is getting more attention, but that everyone's aware enough that they need to look outside, maybe movies about the same white guys, to, get no, to do no, this so
1: no. I, I definitely do, and, and, it, and, it, and in a way I feel fortunate, you know, uh, and I so we all feel that in a certain way. I'm, now I'm speaking for the collective we, uh, although there's, there's been no meetings amongst the collective we of all these films. You know, <laughs>
0: no, no cabal meeting to figure out <laughs> exactly. how to get this all out
1: there. You know, but there's so many of these films. There's Us, there's Fences, there's Birth of a Nation, Queen of Cotway, United Kingdom. I mean, The 13th. I mean, I'm probably missing some. There's so many this yeah. year. Um, and, 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 and what I think of, uh, Hidden Figures, you know, what I think of is, you know, it takes a long time to make a movie. This movie's been three and a half years in the making. All these other films, I'm sure, were four, five, six years in the making. So, so whatever uh, whatever uh, it was that fueled these, these movies, you know, it was rooted And I think, uh, the storytellers, and also, I'm sitting in A24 right now, you know, the people who are supporting these films... Really feeling like yes, you know, the the, the the space needs to be filled. You know, these voices need to be heard, um, and I think that you know, despite the fact that all these films are being framed as a reaction to what happened nine, ten months ago, it's really rooted in the feeling that the creators and the supporters felt, you know, many, many years ago. Um, and I, I just I just feel blessed that we're all arriving at this time when now the awareness is there that, yes, there are other voices, um, and, and they are worth being heard.
0: Yeah. Yeah, speaking of A24, this is kind of going back to the way the film was born, but they came on board to produce the film from the very beginning, so it's not the kind of thing where you're making an indie movie and hoping someone ever sees it because you need to get a distributor. And, yeah, even- yeah.
1: and, 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 and I have to say that the, uh, I, I love talking about them because... You know, three years ago, uh, three and a half years ago, A twenty four didn't exist when we mm-hmm. started. I know. And, and and before this film, they didn't finance films, so they they literally created a lane to birth this movie. So uh, I'm forever thankful to them. Yeah. Hey, Katie, this has been awesome. Let's do yeah. it is,
0: Thank you so much. I hope that I get to see you lots at the awards circuit and also just in normal <laughs> life. Uh, and yeah, and congratulations on the Gotham Awards. That was really exciting to see.
1: Yeah, I think you just informed me of that. So. Oh,
0: good. I should have left you room for like a big reaction or something like that.
1: <laughs> All good. Uh-huh. <laughs>
0: All right. Thanks a lot. So before we go, we're going to go big before we go home. And uh, I guess inspired by talking about Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk, which is directed by two-time Best Director winner Ang Lee, who is going to win Best Director this year? Joanna, I'll make you go first.
3: Oh, great. I was hoping you would. <laughs> I was afraid my answer would get stolen. Uh, mine is Kenneth Lonergan because I saw Manchester by the Sea and mm. w- wept openly and profoundly all the way through it. And, uh, you know, the young actor in that film, Lucas Hedges, was there. And and just the way he talked about uh, Lonergan, who he calls Kenny, process really impressed me. Um, and I don't know if this will come through in the Oscar conversation, but the Amazing turnaround on that movie, how quickly they shot it, um, and the just incredible performance he was able to ring out of Casey Affleck, Lucas Hedges, and the rest of the cast. You know, I just, I loved that movie. I'm not sure what is going to happen in the larger Oscar narrative, but I would, I would pull for Lonergan for that.
0: Well, Lonergan's got kind of a long Hollywood backstory. He's been nominated for screenplay before. So, it, you know, he's a newcomer in this category, but he seems like he's like in the club enough to get attention even if Manchester is kind of a smaller film, which I'm dying to see. I'm going to just maybe go the cop-out route and predict a movie no one has seen yet. I think Denzel Washington could win for Fences, because mm-hmm. uh, actors turned directors tend to be pretty popular with the Oscars, and uh, Fences looks pretty good, and he's the lead actor, and you can see them, you know, maybe loving his performance, but uh, giving him director instead, which uh, I'm trying to... Oh, this is what happened with George Clooney when he won Best Supporting Actor for Syriana the year he was nominated for Best Director, and I think he made a joke when he accepted his Oscar, I guess I'm not winning director. So I'm, I'm predicting the reverse <laughs> with Denzel Washington, given the Best Director's statue let him join a uh, Kevin Costner and Mel Gibson and Clint Eastwood in that actor-turned-director Oscar-winning pantheon Richard what about you
2: so about five years ago a relatively little-known director won an Oscar for directing a sweet throwback pay-on to Hollywood
3: <laughs> his name about- was
2: Michelle Hazanavicius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I think Nails this it. year, a young, relatively unknown director named Damien Chazelle oh, will boy. win for a throwback sweet pay-on to Hollywood.
0: Are you aware that Damien Chazelle is younger than all three of us? Yeah, no, and I'm going to go <laughs> jump out the
2: window. Thank you for <laughs> reminding me. But anyway, I just think La La Land is so big and like lovely and kind of exciting and fun that people will be like, yeah, let's give that kid. you know. And then everyone liked Whiplash, too. So yeah. this would be kind of confirmation of that or something
0: well as we talked about last week you can't go wrong at the Oscars by making a tribute to Hollywood so
2: you sure can't although I like I don't know I like both your choices too I don't, it's, it's gonna be it's this is tricky. a good race I'm really yeah. intrigued there's yeah.
0: precious few women in the uh, kind yeah. of top contenders which is a bummer as always but some really interesting male directors in there as well
2: yeah I mean you know there's always like Scorsese looming you know mm-hmm. or something or Clint Eastwood or something yeah. or Eastwood but, yeah, yeah I um, say. but I think those I think our three picks are, are maybe the strongest right now
0: yeah <laughs> That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks, as always, for listening. And please review us and rate us on iTunes when you have a moment. We really appreciate it. You can find us all writing at VanityFair.com about award season and other things. And uh, we're all on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. I'm at Katie Rich. Joanna. Joe wrote this, And Richard. Rylaws. This episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best description of Hillary Clinton on November 9th goes to Richard Lawson.
2: She's the lone human in the final, beautiful final shot of the film.